It's six o'clock on the dot, and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, August 31st. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, an online dashboard that details school district funding is on the horizon, but will it include private school financial data as well? Line and Kugel's workers have reached an agreement with the company after eight weeks on strike. A spokesperson for a nonprofit that studies incarceration will tell us about their latest research. They found that the prison population is aging faster than ever in Wisconsin and nationwide. All these and more on tonight's news. But first, we go live to the BBC for some news from around the world. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Earlier today, First Lady Jill Biden arrived at Dane County Regional Airport. Channel 3000 reports that she's here to shout out the White House's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which is looking to accelerate progress in cancer treatment. The goal is to reduce cancer deaths by at least 50% over the next 25 years. She also made her way to an event in support of educators this afternoon. And this evening, she's slated to attend a fundraising event with Senator Tammy Baldwin. Legal experts and liberal groups may employ a rarely used clause in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to bar former President Donald Trump from being on the ballot, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The amendment bars anyone from office who once took an oath to uphold the Constitution, but then engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Legal scholars increasingly assert that this clause applies to Trump, due in part to his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The issue is likely to result in a series of legal battles across multiple states. In more local ballot news, pending legislation would prevent candidates from being kicked off the ballot arbitrarily. A series of bills in the state legislature would respond to cases like that of Shandalyn Hendricks-Reeves, a former Milwaukee school board candidate who was disqualified despite submitting more than the maximum number of signatures accepted on her nomination papers. The bipartisan legislation clarifies that if election officials don't find enough valid signatures within the maximum number of signatures submitted, they must continue reviewing additional signatures for valid ones. The bill has been introduced in both chambers of the state legislature, where they are now both in committee. The assembly version of the bill received a public hearing yesterday. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss claims that Justice Janet Protosiewicz made campaign promises that prevent her from ruling fairly on several upcoming issues. As evidence of her bias, Republicans are referring her past statements on voting maps in the state and the 1849 abortion ban. The Associated Press reports today that the state legislature has the necessary votes to commence the impeachment process. There are currently 64 Republicans in the Assembly, The vote only requires 50. The AP calls this an, quote, unprecedented step, unquote. The new Supreme Court has yet to hear a case, and we'll have more about their transition of power later in today's show. 
The city of Waukesha is poised to begin receiving its municipal water supply from Lake Michigan instead of its radium-tainted city wells. The city will begin the diversion in mid-September, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. An international agreement nearly a decade in the making grants the city access to lake water despite its location outside the Great Lakes watershed. As a part of the agreement, the city must return its treated wastewater to the lake via the Root River. The city of Milwaukee will provide the water in return for an annual payment of $3.2 million to $4.8 million. Waukesha also made a one-time payment of $2.5 million to Milwaukee. Madison's homeless population remained high this summer due to the ending of federal COVID-19 funding. The Beacon Emergency Shelter saw a record 270 guests for one night in August, and the number of people the shelter has served has been trending up throughout 2023, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Tori Kopp-Muller, the city's Continuum of Care Coordinator, says the cause continues to be a lack of low-income housing and a lack of support services for individuals who struggle to live alone due to age or disability. Meanwhile, this summer has been particularly challenging for unhoused folks amidst air quality advisories and a heat wave that brought Madison its highest temperatures in a decade. UW Health is preparing to roll out a new program for patients to receive care at home. It's called the Home-Based Hospital Care Initiative. UW Health says its research supports the safety and efficacy of treatment conducted right where patients live. Program director Mandy McCowan told NBC15 that staying home can even result in better outcomes. For now, only four patients can participate in the program, but UW Health is slated to start accommodating hundreds of patients by the start of next year. It was big and it was blue, but while last night's super full moon did indeed look larger than normal, it didn't appear any bluer. So what made it a blue moon? It gets that designation as a second full moon of the month. A 16th century expression inspired the term, suggesting impossibility or rarity. But a blue moon isn't really all that rare. According to Britannica.com, a blue moon occurs once every 33 lunar cycles, a span of less than three years. As for the supermoon, that term is credited to astrologer Richard Nail. To describe the moon's appearance at its orbit closest to the Earth, Al Jazeera estimates the two bodies are now about 222,000 miles apart, compared to an average of 238,000 miles. The difference makes the moon appear 14% larger, NASA says. And now, on to today's top stories. Two years ago, Governor Evers signed a bill to establish a dashboard on school district finances across the state. The dashboard will soon be accessible to the public online. Now, renewed attempts to include private school financial data have brought on conservative outcry. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Conservative groups are in favor of financial transparency from Wisconsin schools. That is, if private school funding isn't included. Two years ago, Governor Evers approved a bipartisan measure to establish an advisory committee to develop a school funding dashboard. That committee, administered by the Department of Public Instruction, now has recommendations on creating that online dashboard. 
As they've reached their 14-day review process, the DPI committee is looking to include private school financial data alongside data from public schools. The original act in 2021 had a proposed amendment to do so, but it was struck down in the Republican-led legislature. And in a committee meeting last week, the legislature's Joint Finance Committee rejected DPI's renewed request to include private school data. Private school advocates say the dashboard was specifically created to get financial transparency from public schools, and they told WPR they're concerned about publicizing private school data on the same dashboard, saying that most private school funding information is already publicly available. The most recent state budget allotted record-breaking funds to private schools. The cost per student in kindergarten through eighth grade went up $1,100. For high school students, the cost increased by almost $3,000. Amy Loudenbeck, Director of Policy and Government Affairs for School Choice Wisconsin, is criticizing DPI for once again requesting to include private school data. She says, The Department of Public Instruction, in their recommendations, exceeded the scope of the original bill that was passed, and that concerns us. And so we recommend that the committee revisit the intent of the legislation and decide what the scope of the legislation was and what recommendations are appropriate in light of the bill that was passed and signed into law and not what the committee thought would be a good idea. Legislatures make law, agencies implement. Loudenbeck is also requesting more transparency from DPI on their latest request to the Joint Finance Committee. She says... What we recommended was that more information be provided to the Joint Finance Committee on the meetings of the DPI committee that made the recommendations, including their membership and communications, because that material was not provided. The process was briefly outlined in the materials that went to the Finance Committee, but we'd like to see them get more information and schedule a meeting to talk about the recommendations. DPI declined an interview but issued a public statement that says, quote, It is rather ironic that a dashboard designed to create financial transparency be criticized for being too transparent about how school finance is operating, unquote. Public school districts across the state are responsible for some facets of private schooling. For example, they provide busing services and special education advice for private schools instructing students with disabilities. This aspect of public school funding will be included on the dashboard. Nichelle Nichols, president of the Madison Metropolitan School District's Board of Education, supports financial transparency. She says, I think if there is a way that it makes the school funding more visible and transparent, that's a great thing. She also says that private schools should be subjected to the same scrutiny. Private schools receive taxpayer funds just like charter schools, just like our public schools. So I think if the dashboard is going to show a more complete picture in terms of transparency, then all schools, regardless of the type of school, should be included in the dashboard. I, I I don't know why we wouldn't include that. Representative Mark Bourne of Beaver Dam, co-chair of the Joint Finance Committee, says that the committee will continue to discuss the school finance dashboard in the next few weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Forty brewery workers will get back to brewing beer at the Kugel's home brewery in Chippewa Falls next week. Their nearly two-month-long strike ended on Tuesday, with the workers receiving a better contract and increased wages. 
WORT reporter Sarah Gabler has more. As the long Labor Day weekend approaches, it's an apt time to appreciate the workers that brew your beloved summer shandy. That's because this week marks the end of a nearly two-month-long strike at the Line & Kugel's flagship location in Chippewa Falls. After two rounds of contract negotiations, the union members voted to approve a new three-year contract with Molson Coors, Line & Kugel's parent company. Workers took to the picket line on July 10th, demanding higher wages and more respect. John Lane, who has worked at the company for 33 years, told Eau Claire's WQOW that strikers were looking for a fair contract in which they would receive a wage increase to get them up to the cost of living, which he said is something which we haven't gotten for a number of years now. Dan Boley represented the Line and Kugel's members of the Teamsters Local 662. He says an important addition to the contract is language that would hold the company accountable. Therefore, the new contract includes clearer guidelines on how workers would receive wage increases within the tiered wage system. Line & Kugel's has been brewing beer since 1867, and it promotes itself as a small-town mom-and-pop operation. But for workers, the small-town pride is overshadowed by corporate ownership. The global beverage giant Molson Coors has owned Line & Kugel's since 2016, and even as Line & Kugel's has maintained its image as a family-run regional operation, this image doesn't jive with workers' experiences, according to Boley. You know, the management doesn't know the employees' names anymore after it's not the, the mom-and-pop shop anymore. And that, that goes outside of the, just the brewing industry as well. You know, you have a couple big companies in the world that buy up everything, and sort of the lack of respect for the employees is gone at that point. To support the strikers, the Teamsters Union set up a solidarity fund and called for a wide-reaching boycott of all Molson Coors products, which included Coors, Hams, Keystone, Miller, and Blue Moon brands. The Democratic Party of Chippewa Falls endorsed the boycott. Yet the brewery itself remained open and even offered tours, according to WQOW. But support for the strikers poured in, says Bully. Folks sent emails and left messages from as far away as London, Canada, and even Kansas. Despite the show of support for the Line & Kugel's workers, labor organizing in the brewing industry is low, says journalist Dave Infante. He says two factors contribute to the low rate of organizing and brewing. The sense that working in a brewery is a dream job, part of the passion economy, and the fact that many craft breweries are family-owned and managed. The Line & Kugel strike comes to an end at the cusp of the Labor Day weekend, making the story of the workers' strike a story that gets to the heart of the American labor movement. Boley, with Teamsters 662, said he's proud that the organizers stood up to corporate greed. What I'm most proud of is maybe not even what's inside of the contract, is the fact that, you know, about 40 brewery workers from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, stood up to the, the fifth biggest beverage company in the world. Raising a toast to brewers everywhere, I'm reporter Sarah Gabler with WORT News. It's now 6.20 p.m. You're listening to WORT.
The last census revealed that the U.S. population is getting older, and a new analysis of the Prison Policy Initiative, a nonprofit nationwide research group, finds that prison populations are aging even faster, and Wisconsin is no exception to that trend. Wanda Bertram is the spokesperson for the Prison Policy Initiative. She spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks yesterday about their latest research. Thank you for joining me, Wanda. I'm happy to be here. The Prison Policy Initiative recently released a report on the aging prison population in the United States. Can you give me a rundown on your findings? So one thing that we have been aware of for some time is that the prison population, just like the overall U.S. population, is getting older. Now, you know, you're probably aware of that if you understand that the baby boomer generation is aging. A lot of people who have looked into the impact of that, how that's just going to change what this country needs in the way of infrastructure for older people. But there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to how that's going to impact prisons and prison life. And what's kind of important and striking is that the prison population is actually aging faster than the overall U.S. population. We effectively did an analysis of how the number of people over the age of 50, uh, excuse me, 55, has changed over the last 30 years or so in the prison system and also people being arrested and going through, passing through local jails. And what we found was that since 1991, the number of folks who are in prison who are over 55 has gone from being about 3% of the prison population to being about 15%. And this is all as actually the, the relative number of younger people in prison has actually decreased. So what we're looking at today is a much older, much grayer prison population than we used to have. And our analysis talks about the costs of that and also talks about why, you know, why this has happened and what states can do to manage this pending what is you know, effectively a healthcare crisis that's in motion. So we are a local news program. Would you say this trend is true for Wisconsin as well as the rest of the nation? Can you speak to that at all? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's true basically anywhere that you look. In fact, the trends in in Wisconsin track almost exactly with what we've seen across the country. In the year 2000, 3% of the prison population in Wisconsin, people in state prisons, were over the age of 55. As of 2019, that number was 13%. So in most states, there has been a leveling out and even in some places a slight decline in the number of people in prison. But the share of total people in prison who are older has gone up. And, you know, if we're talking about the 90s, there's actually, compared to today, there are more older people in prison, just in absolute numbers, than there used to be. That makes a big difference. We have a presumption in this country that we don't mete out cruel and unusual punishment. But you think about the experience that people in prison have who who are older, and we have to acknowledge that this is a very punishing environment. It takes two years off of your life expectancy every year you're incarcerated. We're aging people very rapidly by putting them behind bars. And when it comes to older people, we're, you know, we're creating a locus of pretty intense health care needs that the prison system is not prepared to respond to or care for. In your report, you touched on some factors that are contributing to the increase in older people in prisons. Can you tell me more about that? One of the things that we looked at was, uh, and, and this is one of the less well understood factors contributing to the aging prison population, is policing in this country today. More than ever, what we have over the last 20 years is police forces arresting people who are homeless, arresting people who are going through a mental health crisis, and doing this kind of on a mandate of state governments and laws that states have passed that have criminalized certain aspects of homelessness and extreme poverty. 
for instance, many cities have ordinances that say that you can't sleep in the park, you can't panhandle. To be homeless is to be, you know, committing infractions, criminal infractions, more or less, you know, on a regular basis. And that has driven a lot of homeless people into the, into the prison and jail system. Now, why does that matter? Well, the homeless population is aging quite fast. Over 30% of people who are homeless today are over the age of 55. And that's nationwide. I'm, I'm not sure about Wisconsin. When police forces target these people, they're targeting older people. And now, you know, you, you might also ask, why is the homeless population getting older, you know, even faster than the general U.S. population? And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we have seen over the last half century or so benefits and wages for workers stagnate and decline so that increasingly people are finding themselves unable to go on working or unable to find a job being older, but also unable to take Social Security and unable to start getting Medicare because they're a little bit too young. Overall, the contingent of older people that has made up for the largest share of increase in this prison population and the number of people arrested is people between the ages of 55 and 64, right? So these are people who are no longer able to work in many cases, but are not able to pull from their retirement benefits yet. And the gap in social services for these individuals has, in my view, driven an aging of the homeless population. And then our criminalization of homelessness has driven an aging prison population. Now, that's just one factor, but it's one that I think is important to talk about because every state can do something about this. Every state can increase the resources that it has available to older people who might be struggling economically. And every state and every city can change the way that it responds to homelessness as an issue. So you mentioned earlier that there are rising medical costs for this population. What is the, the trend that you found in the financial cost and how has that increased? What are the numbers there? It's honestly, it's just, it's really simple. As people get older, they have more health issues. They're more likely to have a disability, more likely to have heart problems, blood pressure issues, other chronic illnesses that are you know, complicated to take care of. And prisons are not places that really have a lot of resources for much of the time to deal with these issues. With the prison population getting older, you know, you're seeing the, the overall cost burden that's put on departments of corrections increasing. Now, there is a really kind of obvious solution to this that I think most states have not considered, which is just releasing people from prison who are particularly medically vulnerable, who are on the older side. You know, this is something you can accomplish through compassionate release, a policy by which prisons can identify people who are particularly infirm or who are likely to die, you know, in the next months or, or coming years and say, okay, we're going to let you go home. You have a place to go. We're going we're gonna to release you. We don't want your prison sentence to become a death sentence. It's also something that states can accomplish by expanding opportunities for parole or by introducing something called good time, which is systems where you can earn time off your sentence through good behavior. New Jersey, for instance, drastically expanded its good time policy during the pandemic as a way of identifying people who had demonstrated good behavior throughout their sentences who could be released early to reduce the prison population. So these are all things that, that prison systems can do to avoid you know, having to deal with some of these costs. Unfortunately, I think that most prison systems have not even begun considering it because releasing people who have committed crimes is a political third rail in most communities in this country. It really goes to show this is what happens when we pass you know, draconian laws that put millions of people in prison is, you know, we end up with this older prison population and we don't know what to do about it.
All right. I think that we've answered all of my questions. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would like to discuss? I would be, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that the prison population is already comprised of people who tend to be poor, who tend to be, you know, dealing with kind of a constellation of health issues, you know, prison population nationwide, which is vastly disproportionately Black and Latino. And so it's poor communities, often communities of color, who are losing many of their members to incarceration. And when we talk about the increase of incarceration of older people, we're talking about these communities losing some of their parents and grandparents. You know, it's a very sad thing that I think, you know, deserves a lot more attention on a policy level. The other thing I wanted to mention, because I didn't really get to it when you, you know, you originally asked about why the population has gotten older in prisons, is the role of sentencing. As many people know, from the 70s on through the 2000s, there were an increase in mandatory minimum laws, three strikes laws, and other laws that sent more people to prison for long, long periods of time, decades, right? And the result of that is that some people today who are older in prisons are people who have been there since their 20s. They've been in there for 20, 30, 40 years. That's another factor in the, in the aging prison population are these choices that we made as a society, you know, many decades ago that are coming back to haunt us now. Thank you for speaking with me, Wanda. Oh, yeah, of course. That was Wanda Bertram, spokesperson for the Prison Policy Initiative. According to PPI, their research on the aging prison population points to the consequences of wide systemic issues. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your co-host, Sean Bull, along here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Our last edition of Transparency Talk looked at the Wisconsin Supreme Court and transparency and how decisions might be different with a liberal majority. And after a month of frenzy and fury of activity on the state's high court, we're already getting stories about records and meetings behind the scenes. So that's again the subject of this week's edition of Transparency Talk, when news director Shally Pittman fills in for contributor Jonah Chester to speak with transparency advocate Tom Kamenick. Now, as always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. It's every other Thursday. That means it's time for a transparency talk. And I'm joined in the studio by Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, I'm not Jonah, but you're Tom. Oh, I noticed that. (laughs) Jonah has been called away to other public service journalism. You may or may not be doing one more episode, but yeah, we're, we're in a period of transition. Something else in transition this month. Well, the Wisconsin Supreme Court with a transition of power to a new liberal majority at the start of the month. We've seen a flurry of decisions. The new liberal majority has formed an administrative committee to perhaps dilute the power of conservative Chief Justice Ziegler. They've also fired the director of state courts, Randy Koshnick, and they've made other administrative changes. And today we're going to talk about some of those decisions. Tom, do you want to quickly run us through this flurry of activity? Supreme Courts, as much as we uh, kind of hope them to be above the fray, they're still government actors. They're still politicians at heart. And uh, 
we saw some major changes uh, from the new liberal majority. They immediately took uh, a lot of steps to to con uh, take control over the court operations because uh, the problem they're facing is that under a change to Wisconsin's constitution uh, a little bit less than 10 years ago, the Supreme Court's chief justice is now elected rather than being the, the most senior justice, which means that currently it is uh, Chief Justice Annette Ziegler, who's one of the conservative bloc members, and she is in that chief justice office for another year or so. She's got some time left. Uh, so what the liberal majority did was uh, they created a new committee, and it's comprised of two members, including the chief justice and two of the liberal members. So the, the liberal members control this committee. And then what they did was they took uh, a lot of the specific jobs that the chief justice did and gave it to this committee. So then uh, chief justice fired back publicly about that, called it unconstitutional and improper. There's going to be a big fight over it. And, you know, guess who gets to decide that fight? It's the Supreme Court itself. So it might not go anywhere. But, you know, immediately after all of the reporting on this information, well, what does everybody do? They, they start filing record requests and they want to see what the justices were talking about over emails. And it turns out they're talking about quite a bit. And they uh, there's been a, a kind of a document dump of emails over the past couple of days from the Supreme Court. You take a look at these emails and Wisconsin Watch has just the whole dump of them that you can go and take a look at yourself. And you'll see there's a, a, a bunch of votes among the justices making some of these changes and they're voting by email, which is legally proper for the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court itself is not subject to open meetings laws. So they don't have to hold their deliberations publicly and they typically haven't. So you have the, the liberal justices making these votes, and you see especially the conservatives, uh, Ziegler, the chief, and also uh, Rebecca Bradley, writing lengthy responses, criticizing these changes, criticizing the speed at which they're moving, criticizing the lack of transparency. And the liberals uh, didn't respond a whole lot in emails. Mostly they were just getting the work done. One of the really interesting things that, that we saw in there was Brian Hagedorn, who is often a swing vote and was kind of the deciding factor in the in the last configuration of the court. He would side with the liberals sometimes and with the conservatives sometimes. And he was trying to play a bit of peacemaker in these emails. But he, he called out one thing that, that really seemed to bother him was the lack of transparency in, in the process here. So one of the things that the liberals did was they, they changed the Supreme Court rules, which are rules of procedure that attorneys and courts have to follow. And then they retroactively changed their internal operating procedures to make that change to the Supreme Court rules okay, because it wouldn't have been okay previously under the old IOP. So they're kind of a little bootstrapping themselves to make it okay. And, and here's what Brian Hagedorn says about this. I wanted to quote the whole thing. He says, this would seem to be a get out of public scrutiny free card that could be deployed at will. The majority has apparently adopted revisions to the internal operating procedures that allow the court to keep far more out of the public eye than we have ever done before. But uh, his, his complaints did not result in any changes. Everything moved forward with the changes that were being made. And so what are these rules of procedure that had changed in the transition? Because you're a lawyer. Can you help us unpack what these rules are? I don't know exactly what which ones were changed, uh, but these okay. are rules that regulate how cases go through court. So once you are in court filing a lawsuit or filing an appeal, uh, all these rules uh, set forth 
the procedures of how that's done. And then they also set forth the rules of attorney behavior and ethics while they are practicing law. So the Supreme Court is changing these operating procedures. Why did they do that? A lot of them had to do with uh, removing control from the chief justice and putting that control in the hands of this administrative committee that they controlled. This is still mostly administrative things. So one example is that the committee now has the power to decide when to schedule cases for hearings. So the Supreme Court justices hold oral argument days just a handful of times a month. And previously, the chief justice would write that calendar and decide which cases were heard on which days. And, and now it's the committee's job. And to be clear, this is scheduling when to hear cases, but it's not whether to hear cases. Correct. Whether to hear a case is still decided by a vote of the Supreme Court justices. And in most circumstances, it takes a vote of three of the seven justices to hear a case. We're still in the thick of it. Going forward, there are going to be uh, public hearings. Let's talk about the transparency of those. What's next? Yeah, one good thing that's coming out of this from a transparency standpoint is that uh, the Supreme Court has voted to reopen their administrative conferences. Uh, so Wisconsin was very unusual for a long time that the, the justices would meet in public meetings uh, to consider rule petitions to change their own operating procedures to handle these administrative tasks other than deciding cases. You know, every court everywhere deliberates privately still. Very few of them deliberate their administrative rules openly. And uh, for a couple decades or so, I think Wisconsin did that. And then when the conservatives took control in the early 2010s, they changed that and went back to closed sessions. And that got a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism from transparency advocates, myself included. And now the Supreme Court is opening those back up again. So that's a good thing. But there's some charges of hypocrisy here because when over the summer, the, the liberal justices met in private, which was not illegal, but maybe not consistent with their commitment now to holding things publicly, but they met with only five of them uh, to go over and make some of these rule changes. And so, so what had happened was the liberal justices had asked Chief Justice Ziegler we'd like to have an administrative conference this summer. And it's not exactly clear why Ziegler said no, but it is traditional for the court not to do any work over the summer. And the little they do is typically done remotely through through like literally mail-in votes on things. And they have rules on the court saying, we've got a set calendar and we have to follow the calendar and we, we will only hold administrative meetings with unanimous consent of the justices. So that's my reading between the lines of why Justice Ziegler said no. Uh, but the liberals didn't want to wait until the normal calendar of this of the start of the year. So they held a meeting in August and a majority voted on all these changes. And that's kind of what set off the flurry of back and forth emails about whether that was appropriate, whether that was effective. And it's still playing out now. So we don't know where this is going to wind up. All right. Tom Kamenick from the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Remember, folks, if you don't ask, you won't know. Labor Day weekend is almost here, and despite the heat, it's still a great time to hit the water. Nate Wegekaupt and Pat Hasberg have this week's fishing report, and they take a look at who is avoiding this weekend's heat and who loves it. (laughs) 
Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hansberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, Labor Day weekend almost here upon us. I actually know a couple people that are already celebrating Labor Day. They took a couple days off, which I mean, hey, more power to them. And that's probably a good idea because this weekend's also uh, looking like it's going to be really, really hot. Not going to be the the nicest outside unless you're out by the water, maybe doing some fishing. So uh, let's start right there. How have the uh, fish bite been looking the last couple of weeks? Fishing's been great. Uh, bluegill's in a great mood, and on outside weed edges up here in Mendota. Otherwise, they've been suspended uh, over deep water on the rest of the chain. Uh, got smallmouth bass and walleye on outside weed edges and mid-lake humps that have also been in a great mood with this uh, nicer, cooler weather we had this, this last week. And, of course, uh, pike are plentiful all around the chain, and, and I heard the muskie bite down on Monona's been picking up a little bit. And, yeah, let's start getting right into it then. Let's look at Lake Mendota. You mentioned it a little bit there, but uh, what's been happening over there? Well, most of the, most most people this time of year are out chasing perch, but the perch have been found in good numbers but in uh, smaller size. So a lot of five- and six-inch perch, so not quite at that keeper size that folks like. But like I mentioned, the good news is, is that the bluegills have been keeping folks busy out there. A uh, lot of smallmouth out there right now and some real nice ones, it seems like. Every other person that comes in, even if they're just out fishing for panfish, they're pulling in some real nice smallmouth and in good numbers. So the walleyes out there have been in a good mood. And uh, like I mentioned, too, lots of pike out there that are willing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a good week. Uh, this heat coming in is probably going to keep some folks off the water. Um, but that doesn't mean that the fish are going to stop eating. So uh, a lot of good opportunities to get out and enjoy some fishing. Get out early, beat the heat, and then you can That's you can right. get your fishing in and not have to, you know, uh, sweat your butt off out there. Uh, let's That's move right. on over now to Monona. What's happening on Lake Monona? Well, uh, bluegills out there have been out uh, suspended mostly over deep water. You can still find some on weed lines and, and up shallow. Most of those fish will be smaller fish, uh, but uh, big schools of fish out over deep water. So basically just drifting along anywhere uh, from 30 feet out to 70 feet of water. Th- those fish are going to be about 15 feet down. It could be 10, it could be 20, but we'll say about 15 feet down and, and in active schools. Uh, they are getting some good fish off the Monona Terrace wall and a good crappie bite over there at night. Um, and like I mentioned before, the, the muskie bites have been picking up out there. I've been hearing about some, some good reports of some nice muskies coming in. Now, Pat, we've talked about droughts before, but obviously this weekend looking hot, and obviously last week was extremely hot out there, and obviously that affects our ability to get out onto the water to actually do some fishing. But does that actually do anything to the the fish bite at all when we have these really, really hot days like this? Well, it depends on the species. Um, Some fish relate better to cool water, so... Uh, muskies and walleyes tend to kind of shut down when it gets really hot, but the bass action can pick up. Uh, this last week when we had that heat spell come through, uh, the, the smallmouth bass action was fantastic. Guys from shore, also out in, on the lake and weed lines and mid-lake humps were finding uh, some great action. So um, it really just depends on the species. I, I don't feel like it affects panfish one way or another too much. They're just pretty pretty chill when it comes to water temps so um it it just depends on what kind of fish you're chasing and and if it's too warm some fish shut down trout also and in small streams they'll shut down if it gets too warm but um yeah the the bass bite really turns up so you just got to adjust your tactics a little bit i think 
we all know that one person that's really into the hot weather. And uh, yeah, that's not not for me. No, thanks. Uh, moving on over now, let's take a look at Lake Wingra. What's happening on Wingra? Uh, Wingra's been Wingra. It's a lot of small fish on the bluegill side of things, but uh, some giant largemouth bass down there that can be caught. Uh, also, you know, it's a, well known that it's a great musky lake, so a lot of good muskies in there. But, of course, if it gets too hot, those fish are not going to be in the best mood. All right. And final lake for today, let's take a look at Kiganza. What's happening on Kiganza? Well, you know, it's been it's it's been kind of an up and down year for us. Uh, talking here, you know, some some reports it's down and some reports it's up. I, I sounds like we're in a bit of a downturn again. Uh, that's not to say there aren't fish to be caught down there, but I do hear about bluegills suspended out over deep water, just like Wabisa and Monona. But um, the walleye bite down there seems to have slowed a little bit, and I, I just haven't heard much else in the way of um, good action down there. But uh, the bluegill bite is, has been good down there, and Kianza really cranks out some of the nicest bluegills on the chain. So uh, that's a, it's a great opportunity to really get into some nice fish down there. And now let's move over to some trout streams. Now, obviously, this weekend, like we said, maybe not the best for looking for trout. But, you know, over the past week, how have the uh, trout been biting? Trout fishing has been great. I was out uh, this last weekend for a little bit and had a great uh, afternoon with a friend of mine. We were just fishing some small water and did really well with uh, grasshopper patterns. Um, It seems like there's an unusually large amount of grasshoppers out there right now. And the fish know that, and they are looking up and waiting for that plop of a nice, easy meal that land on the water, and they're pretty quick to come right up and grab them. So if you're out looking for trout this time of year, I'd, I'd look uh, at grasshopper patterns. But uh, it's always hard hard to beat a, a worm under a bobber or any of your spinning gear spinners or rapalas or anything like that, too. But, uh, yeah, trout fishing has been great, though. All right, and real quick, wrapping up, let's take a look at some of the other rivers, the Wisconsin River, Yahara. What's happening there? Well, uh, the Wisconsin River is running very low right now, uh, which is, I guess, sort of typical for this time of year now, but it's been low since June, really. Um, and But the one nice thing about that is that low water concentrates a lot of the fish in any anywhere you can find even just slightly deeper water, maybe a little current, uh, some rocks or or shoreline cover uh, is going to hold fish. And so the, it's been a great smallmouth bass bite out there. Uh, it's pretty exciting fishing too, because you, you basically just look for smallmouth chasing huge schools of shad underwater and they bust those fish on the surface. And if you can find a smallmouth doing that, you just cast literally anything that looks like a minnow into that uh, fray and those fish will likely jump on it. So it's a real exciting way to fish. Um, the musky bite I, I heard has been picking up up there too, and some good pike, and actually some good panfish action if you can find a little floor water near some near some cover. So a lot of good fish to be had on the river, even though the level, levels are low. And that'll have to about do it for today here, Pat. Remember, you can hear an update fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one simple, easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Happy Labor Day. If you're you're getting out, remember, bring some water. uh, Try and get out early. Beat the heat a little bit. But, uh, hey, there's no perfect time to uh, or no better time to get out fishing than Labor Day weekend. Pat, thanks for talking with me again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Take care. A 10-man forward Madison clawed their way back from being down 4-2 to salvage a gritty draw this past Saturday in Fresno, California.
Still in a playoff position, the Flamingos travel south to Chattanooga, Tennessee this weekend to face the Red Wolves. Here's more from feature contributors Andrew, Evan, and Grant in this edition of Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 on your radio dial. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC theme publication New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt along with the Director of Public Relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick. When we last left you, FMFC again were still battling for playoff positioning, and were facing the beginnings of a month-long stretch where every match would be on the road and away from the raucous crowds of Bree Stevens Field. The Goes had to head down to South Georgia for a chance to enact some revenge after a 4-1 loss to Tormenta at home in, in late July. Following that, FMFC would migrate west to Fresno, California, for a matchup against the ever-scrappy Central Valley Fuego FC. With a recap of the action and what transpired on the pitch, Evan, take it away. While two matches occurred in the time since we last talked, the match in Fresno, California this past Saturday will be the focus of our recap today. Forward Madison entered the match following a tough loss at the hands of South Georgia, while Central Valley Fuego FC were handling a losing streak of their own. With both teams trying to right the ship, the match was sure to produce fireworks, and boy did it. Central Valley opened the scoring with a goal in the first minute of the match. Not even three minutes later, Ford Madison went on the attack with a ball finding the feet of Jaden Onan just outside the box, who ripped the beauty of a shot to beat the Fuego keeper to level the match at 1-1. In the 13th minute, former Central Valley player and current Ford Madison striker Christian Cheney was taken down in the box and a penalty was awarded. Cheney stepped up to the spot and fired the Mingos into the lead. Central Valley then went on the offensive to tie up the match in the 28th minute. The rest of the first half was back and forth, but Fuego added a third goal just before halftime to go into the break up 3-2. The second half started with a costly mistake by FMFC's defense, awarding a penalty to Fuego to eventually go up 4-2 in the match. A second yellow card was shown to defender Jake Krul after the penalty, and the Mingos were forced to play down a man for the remainder of the match. Facing a two-goal deficit and down a man, Ford Madison calmly built their way back into the match and were rewarded with a set-piece goal from newcomer Pierre De Silva in the 70th minute. Brimming with confidence, FMFC continued the attack to level up the match with a defiant strike from Christian Cheney in the 83rd minute. The match finally ended level at 4-4, with both clubs taking a point away in a match that will be remembered for some time. As we sit now at the end of August, Ford Madison is currently in fifth place and hold on to a playoff position in USL League One. One final away match remains for the Flamingos before finally returning home to the friendly confines of Bree Stevens Field on Saturday, September 9th. Since the team is smack dab in the middle of the three-week away trip, it had been a while since we'd spoken with Forward Madison's head coach and technical director, Matt Glazer. 
We caught up with Matt earlier this week, who had this to say about the end-to-end play and high scoring of the Fresno game. We've kind of gone out of our way to to really try and um, not have games be wide open like that. That's sort of something that the coaching staff and I have believed in from day one. We want to be organized. We want to be um, we, we want to be solid defensively. I think even regardless of some of the results last season and, and you know you know even where we're at now, like in the last couple of games, like I, I think generally we, we've 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 been a pretty organized defensive team. We've been a pretty we kind of always, regardless of kind of whatever's going on, we've that's something that we've really tried to to, to buy into and, and make the players buy into. And I think and I think they have. Um, I think uh, the game just honestly, I think we we had a little. Obviously, look when you concede a goal in, in under a minute, it's 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 never a good thing. So so obviously an early sort of shock to the system and and uh, okay, we're in a game now. Um, I think uh, that that kind of changed the whole dynamic of the game because then from minute one, we're chasing the game. And, um, you know, for better or worse, you know, we played at a pretty high tempo. I thought we played some really nice football um, for, for at times. The, the goal, Jaden's goal is a very, very nice goal, a little combination through the center of the park. He, he takes it very well. Really pleased with that goal. Um, did some good things in the transitions, the, the, the play that leads up to Cheney's penalty. Really pleased with that. Glazer didn't mince words about the defensive organization and physicality and the team's need to assert themselves when opposition teams are attacking. And then really disappointed the way we, we finished the half. Just some really soft uh, defending. Our dual, our dual success rate was not what it's going to need to be um, for us moving forward. And, and uh, yeah, I think the guys know that. I think we got to defend. We got to defend the box a little bit better. And obviously, that's been shown in the last couple of games. We just haven't been. Um, we just haven't been as tight. If I think we've conceded like a third of the goals for the whole season in the last two games. So, so we've got to. We've got to get back to. Uh, we've got to get back to that defensive sharpness. That's been sort of a calling card for us all season. And uh, I think we're, we're better than what we've shown. Despite the criticism, Glazer was pleased with the grit and resilience the team displayed to get a result in Fresno after going in down a man to defender Jacob Kroll's straight red card in the 52nd minute. Look, overall, to, to go down a man in, in the second half of that game and play down a man for, you know, 40-plus minutes and, and get two goals back is an incredible testament to, to the grit that you mentioned and, and, and the, the willpower and what these guys believe in. and. Um, so I was so happy that the guys didn't give up and throw it so easy to throw in the towel after a trip like that under the conditions that we've had and, and uh, with some of the things that went on in the game from, you know, the officiating standpoint, so on and so forth. There's there's so many excuses to, to throw in the towel, but I was really pleased that the guys didn't give up and, and uh, we fought to the end and, and obviously got, got a point out of the game. The Flamingos are back in action this Saturday. On the road again to finish up their stretch away from Bree Stevens Field with a matchup against Chattanooga Red Wolves SC. Kickoff is at 6.30 p.m. Central. FMFC will finally return home on Saturday, September 9th for a chance to solidify their playoff chances and host a rematch against one Knoxville SC. Kickoff for that match will be 7 p.m. local time. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. Madison! 
And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Your headline writer was Peter Fowler. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Special thanks to feature contributors Tom Kamenick, Pete Hasberg, Nate Weggehaupt, and the Forward Focus crew, Andrew Schmidt, Grant Peters, and Evan Warwick. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. Thanks for listening. Wiz yeah. I was streaming before streaming was cool. So. <laughs>